The reading for today is from Isaiah 43, verses 16 through 21. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Mr. Ponce. Good morning. Welcome, church. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I have had the privilege of studying this scripture all week, and man, it has been a blessing. So I hope, by God's grace, I can communicate some of that to you all this morning. Um, A couple of quick things I wanted to mention. Um, We talked about it a a couple weeks ago, but in case you don't know, we did add a 7.30 a.m. service And we're hoping to help. It's already helped free up some room during this service. But if you didn't know that and you'd consider that, that would help us again free up more space as God continues to allow us to grow by his grace. So praise God for that. I also want to make sure you know about a new prayer ministry of ours that's praying during this service. There are people praying for you right now in this moment as a part of this prayer ministry. And I would invite you to join in serving in that way if the Lord's kind of tugging your heart. We'd love to see that grow and have people praying at every service and schedule people and do all the things. But there's a number, by the way, since I'm talking about it, there's a number here that you can text anytime things that you'd like us to pray for and we'll pray. And so you could save that phone number and call it Arcadia Prayer or something and text that throughout the day, throughout your week, if something comes up that you'd like us to pray for and then we'll pray for that thing. So I think that's a really sweet Ministry, it's a sweet opportunity for us to love and serve you. So I hope you take us up on that. Uh, let me pray and then we'll, we'll get into this. Uh, God, we thank you for your word. We are so blessed by it when we study it. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to the hearts and minds of the people here this morning. I believe you have a word to share for us this morning. So we pray that our hearts would be fertile ground for that word, that when that seed takes root, it would grow and flourish and bear good fruit for you, God, and not be quickly choked out by the worries and cares of this world, or fall on rocky soil and get burned up, have no deep roots. Um, God, make our hearts fertile right now and ready for your word. Uh, We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. There's this guy named Samuel Rutherford. He uh, knew a thing or two about troubles. He lived in Scotland. He was a pastor. He was a theologian in the 1600s, very long time ago. Uh, he wrote letters to the churches that he pastored. And some wonderful person took excerpts from those letters and kind of pulled out these wonderful little sayings of his and these little quips and put them together in this little book that has been such a blessing to me over the years. It's called The Loveliness of Christ. Isn't that a nice title? The Loveliness of Christ. Famously, he didn't just write letters. He also famously wrote a book called Lex Rex, which is translated to the King's Law. It's Latin for the King's Law, which critiqued the sovereignty of the rule of King Charles II. You can see how that might be a problem for our buddy Samuel, right? Speaking against the sovereignty of the king of England is a bit of a problem. He basically, in the book, called that king a prince to the true king. Which, I mean, all of us in here would say, yeah, that's true, but that was a revolutionary thing. That was not an okay thing to say back then. What that caused was when that book came out, Uh, Samuel was stripped of his offices. He was, uh, all of the, the copies of Lex Rex were ordered to be burned. And then he himself was sentenced and charged with treason. The penalty of that would have been death. 
And so he never uh, was executed, though, because by this time, he was an older man. He died uh, before he was able to be executed. But just to kind of paint a picture that this guy knew a thing or two about troubles. You can imagine what that would have been like to communicate something that you think you see in Scripture and then be tried for treason for it and stripped of your offices. On top of all that, just the concerns of caring and pastoring for churches. One of the little quotes in here that he said to his church is, I hope to over-hope and over-believe my troubles. Think about that for a sec. I hope to over-hope and over-believe my troubles. That in times of trouble, he would remind himself and remind the church to over-hope and over-believe your troubles. To hope over and above your troubles. Because God's people have always known a thing or two about troubles too. That even when it looks bad, there's reason to hope. This is the main message from God to his people today, I believe. In this text, Isaiah 43 and 44, God is doing a new work. A brand new thing. He's promising a new exodus and sparking a reason for hope for God's people. Things didn't look good, but he's sparking reason for hope. Before we dive in, let's remember what Pastor Frank shared when we started this series in Isaiah three weeks ago, that these 16 chapters that we're studying, 40 to 55, are the very center, the very heart of this incredible book of Isaiah. And in this section, we find both poetry and prophecy. This being given as a glimpse into a a future reality, and God's people at this time are heading into exile into Babylonian conquest, and things don't look good. Discipline is coming. Remember, Frank talked about this last week, that God disciplines the ones he loves. Yes, discipline is coming, but restoration is coming too. God is protecting the chosen ones as they're punished for their sin. And four things he gave us to remember during these nine weeks. One, that God is a transcendent and different being than we are. We've got to remember that. He doesn't think the way we think. He doesn't operate the way we would. Two, that God's word is powerful, active, and eternal. That a timeless God would never produce dated material. That this material applies to us here today. Three, the Hebrew word translated servant is used 21 times in just these 16 chapters. It's a major theme here, and we need to remember that when service is mentioned, you could interchange that with worship. Worship and service go together in this text. Four, and lastly, that chapters 40 through 55 is referred to as the Old Testament gospel, which makes sense, right? If you're heading into exile, you need good news. That's what the gospel is. Good news. So Isaiah is referred to as the good news of the Old Testament. That God is going to redeem. A deliverer is coming. And we know ultimately this deliverer was Jesus. Everything in here points to him. I think what we're going to find in our text today is that the kind of hope being talked about is not the kind of hope that we often hear when someone's sick, for example, and we hear, oh, I hope you get better. It's well meant, it's appreciated, but I hate to sound cynical, but isn't it a little bit meaningless? I hope you feel better. What are you hoping in? You can't do anything about it. Hope you feel better. Isn't it a little bit like, hey, sending positive vibes your way? Anybody ever gotten that? I'm going to send you some positive vibes. Oh, I received those positive vibes. Thank you. Now, the kind of hope that we're talking about here is a rooted hope. It's rooted in who God is, who we are, and what he's promised. That's the kind of hope we're talking about here. Because our hope as Christians is not in nothing. It's in someone. So here's a, a, admittedly, this is nerdy, but here's a little chart. Okay? This is a chart of, I just started to recognize all all of the ways that God is revealing who he is. And this is just in these two chapters. Look at that. That's a long list. God really wants you all to know who he is. So I'm just going to read a couple. I'm going to read these. That God is present with us. He wants you to know that he's present with you, especially in times of trouble. 
that God is the Holy One, your Savior, that God's the gatherer of his people, that God's in control of the nations. We need to be reminded of that. God's in control. He stands alone. There's none like him. That's said a few times. That God is God now, and he's God henceforth. From now on, he's God. He's God now and and moving forward. He's still God. That God is the Redeemer. He's the former of Israel. He, he formed Israel together. That he's the King. God wants you to know he's the way maker. He's a doer of new things. He's the bringer of life in something as desolate as a desert in that image. That God's the provider. He's the forgiver of sins, but he's also the forgetter of our sins. That God's reasonable. More than once, he says, let's reason together. Bring your case. I'd love to hear it. That God is the helper. He's the bringer of his spirit. He's the rock. And that God is discerning. He's wise. In just these two chapters, this is who God is revealing himself to be. Now, there is no list that can contain all of the ways he's described in the whole Bible. This is just two chapters. But also in these two chapters, we find descriptions of who God says we are. And that matters, too. If our hope is to be rooted, we need to remember who we are. So here's what he says in just these two chapters. That we are created and formed by God and for God. That we are redeemed called by his name. That you will experience the waters and trials and fires, but you won't be overtaken by them. That you are precious, honored, loved by God. That you are witnesses. You are God's chosen servants. That your transgressions are blotted out. They're forgotten by God. We need to remember that before God, we're blameless. But, importantly, You are not forgotten. Your sins are forgotten, but you aren't forgotten. That you are blessed with the Spirit. And, of course, no matter where you go, God would say, you are invited back. That's who you are. You are invited back. Without these truths, hope means nothing. But with these truths, our text today will show us where our true hope belongs. In times of trouble, it's God's word that gives us hope by telling us, reminding us who God is, who we are, and what he's promised. The first text we're going to look at is 43. We're going to read 1 through uh, 13. Someone took my bookmark. Forty-three, one through thirteen. One brief note before we read, just to look out for: fear is mentioned often in this text. Fear, and in what we're going to read, we're going to come across that as well. Maybe that's a word for you today that you need to hear from the Lord. Don't be afraid. Maybe there's something that the Lord would say to you in that. But I just would say, look for those when we see them, and and look for this. Why is God saying, "Don't be afraid"? What what reason does He give to not be afraid? We'll look at that. So 43, and we'll read 1 through 13. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, not if, but when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, Peoples in exchange for your life, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone 
who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together, all the people assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. Let them hear and say, it is true, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am. I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I'm God. Also, henceforth, I'm He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work. And who can turn it back? This text began with, but now. Remember in chapter 42, God describes His people as blind, deaf, dumb to the working of God, and promises to destroy them. And then we read, but now, and then all these amazing words of comfort and redemption. What's going on here? Is God changing his mind? It's like getting whiplash reading these texts sometimes. I'll destroy you, and I love you. If it helps, consider the love of a parent here. When my kids make mistakes, are they now no longer my kids? No, of course not. Is my love for them changed? No. If I cast my kids off when they sinned, you would, and rightly, question my love for them in the first place. So why punish them at all? Why not just let them do what they want? Well, it's because of love. Frank talked about this last week. Punishment is an act of love. It's a redirection away from danger and towards life. And God's great ocean of love for us doesn't change the aftermath of sin's wake left behind by us. But it does change our destination. It guides us towards safe harbor. God's punishment is a redirection. It's an act of love, a love that's expressed because God's people, like it said, we are precious in his eyes. More than that, we're honored. More than that, he simply loves you. So for those that caught it, why should God's people not be afraid, even though they face the judgment and discipline of God himself? Verse 2 ultimately ends with the idea, don't be afraid because I'm with you. That's why you shouldn't be afraid. Verse 5 echoes the same thing. Don't be afraid because I am with you. That's why. Don't be afraid. What a glorious truth to know that in times of trouble, God is with us. A truth that King David knew full well when he said in those exuberant words in Psalm 23, verse 4, many of us know it, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. One of the main reasons for our hope is this, God Emmanuel, meaning God with us. We're not alone. We never will be. Many of you don't know this, but uh, I've had a pretty extensive surgical background uh, when I was a young man and into my early teen years. And if you want to hear more of that story, I'd be happy to unpack it sometime. But the thing that took me years to reconcile was God's apparent silence in the midst of my suffering. And if you've gone through a season of suffering, you you might resonate with that too, that God, for some reason, feels distant. I mean, candidly, I never felt further from God than in that season, that last one in particular. That's a tough question to answer. But over the years, here's what I've come to. I don't know why it often feels that way to many of us during suffering. I don't know why, but I do know that my feelings about God have no bearing on the fact of God, Emmanuel. That my feelings of his presence have no bearing on the fact of his presence. He was with me then, despite my feelings, and he's with me now. He's with you now. And I hope and pray that I'll remember that, tuck that away for my next season of suffering, and that it'll make me suffer well. Like Jesus. Jesus suffered well. Because he knew who God was. He knew who he was. 
And that hope made him suffer well. Next, we're going to read 43, verse 14 through 24. I know I'm reading kind of longer sections of Scripture, but it's so good. I'm not reading every single verse of this, sadly, but I am going to read a couple of bigger sections. So just do the work to read with me, stay engaged, follow along. Even in your Bible, if there's something that jumps out at you, put a little tick mark next to it or highlight it or something to refer back to later on, because I may or may not talk about that specific thing. So 43, we'll read 14 through 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the desert. A rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me. The jackals and the ostriches. I bet you didn't know that there's an ostrich reference in the Bible, but now you do. For I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And then there's a shift here. There's a tone shift. God says, yet you... Did not call upon me, O Jacob. But you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You've not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Isn't it shocking to realize that our sins burden and weary the Lord? The New Bible Commentary says it like this. Israel's devastating response to divine ardor is a yawn of apathy. Wow. Remember what we just read? God's pouring out of his great love for us. And then the very next thing, Israel's like, I'm tired of that. I'm I'm bored. A yawn of apathy. It reminds me a little of Romans 6.1. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Heck no. Let's take this reminder to heart, church, that our sin is costly. God doesn't take it lightly, and neither should we. Lord, forgive us for burdening you, and thank you for unburdening us, for delivering us. Verses 18 and 19 speak of not remembering the old things, referencing the Exodus story, which you can find in the book of Exodus. If you haven't read it, it's, it's amazing. It's a story that's never been forgotten. And how could it be? It's amazing. It's good for us to read it and remember it and realize that God is in control. He's powerful. He's a deliverer. He's a savior, a redeemer. But here, verse 18 and 19 say, forget about all that. You haven't seen anything yet. Can't you see that God's doing a new work right in front of you? That God's going to bring a new exodus? Can't you see it? And the point I'll make is simply this. Let's not get so comfortable with the God we know. Remember Frank's point at the top of the series, that God is a transcendent and different being than we are. We can't get too comfortable with with what we know of him. Let's not be so sure of what God's done that we forget to look up and see that he might be doing a new thing. Let's not be too busy remembering that we forget to also anticipate God's new work. He's still on the move. He's still in control. He's still building his kingdom here as it is in heaven. Let's be on the lookout. The last larger section that we'll read is Isaiah 43, 25. We'll continue this thought and we'll end with 44, 8 in this section. 
God continues, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned. Your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. 44, verse 1. But now, here. Here's that switch again. I'm going to destroy you and I love you. Hear now, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare, set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. This section started with a call to remembrance, to remember God, his work, and his redemption. It also includes another two calls to not fear, but the reasons were slightly different this time. I think it's important that we catch that. Verse 2 of chapter 42, or 44, verse 2, said, Fear not, for I will pour water on thirsty lands, and I will pour out my spirit upon my people. Water, of course, gives physical life. There's no life without it. And the spirit gives spiritual life. There's no life without that. So it's saying, fear not, because God gives life. And then verse 8, fear not, basically saying, because God is God. That's it. That you are his witnesses. You still have a job to do, and he's not done with you yet. That's why you shouldn't be afraid. In other words, Israel here is being told to overhope and overbelieve their troubles. A word about this hope. You might be sitting here not really resonating with the idea of your need for this hope. And I'll have a word for you in just a moment. But others in here, you need this word of hope today. There's something you're experiencing right now that feels hopeless. Hopeless. And you need this word today to not give up just yet. Keep going a little longer. If that's you, I'd say remember Remember that the kind of hope being talked about here is rooted. Remember who God is. Remember who you are, what he's promised. During our prayer ministry last week, we were praying during this service last week for a woman who texted in and asked for prayer for her friend who just got a cancer diagnosis. And so we were praying. And Zach Hines was in there praying. Um, Tessa Coates, Eric Gilmore, we all prayed for this woman without really knowing her or her friend. Zach prayed for her healing. Of course, we pray that God would heal and intervene. Tessa prayed for her to be continually surrounded by godly people that would walk with her well in this season, that God would surround her by support and community. And here's what I prayed. I said, Lord, yes, we pray for healing, but we, in some way, can't, we uh, thank you for her cancer diagnosis. Because we know that in her suffering, she's going to experience a fresh nearness to you. An alignment with your own suffering, Jesus. So whether this woman is healed or not, she is safe with you and is near you. That's a crazy thing to pray. Let's just acknowledge that. I, don't, I am not trying to be flippant with this. This is serious. But that's a, a wild thing to pray. That's something only a Christian can pray. 
right? 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that we don't mourn in the same way that the world mourns. We grieve, yes, but they mourn without hope. Getting that kind of diagnosis is hopeless. Maybe you'll be healed. I mean, maybe you won't. It's hopeless. But we mourn as those with hope. We over-hope and over-believe those troubles. And our troubles can't, can't stand against a hope like that. It's the promised nearness of Christ in times of trouble that spark hope in those times. Because he's with us. And to the person who might struggle to feel that need for hope right now, the fact of life is you will need that one day, even if it's not right now. Maybe this is something you just tuck away deep inside your heart for a suffering that's yet to come. But let me try to spark your imagination more. As I've considered the practical implications of a hope like this, I've begun to see the need for it everywhere. I'm just going to try to explain a couple of them. First, rooted in the text... How many times have we read, you are my witnesses? A lot, a lot of times, you are my witnesses. We have a job to do. So the first thing I would say is, we can't preach hope to others if we're not convinced of our need for that hope ourselves. So embrace that need for hope on behalf of your neighbor, on the sake of, for the sake of your neighbor. The second thing that came to mind is that this inner fight against sin that Christians walk in every day, that one day that will be over. One day that battle is going to be won. And what Christian in here doesn't resonate with that idea? The temptations in our heart every day, every moment, to lust, hate, envy, greed, and all our battles against it will one day be accomplished, done, wiped away. Doesn't that spark hope? in you. It's not always going to be like that. I had this thought while I was sitting through a drive-thru. I was kind of in a hurry. Someone jumped right in front of me in the drive-thru lane and then had the biggest order imaginable. I don't know why they needed so many things. But my heart was tempted towards despising my neighbor right there. So I have this little wooden cross that I keep in the center console of my car, and I grab that, and I hold it, and I pray, God, help me not hate this person in my heart right now. Help me to love them. Help me. Help me. And I just was struck by this idea that that battle won't be forever. Eventually, God's going to win that for me. Man, that's, that gives me hope. It gave me hope, and it sparked uh, my desire to double down. And get serious about that. God, seriously, help me. Help me to love instead. Help me to pray for them instead. So the inner fight one day will be over. The inner fight for the Christian against sin will be over. But also that the outer fight of the effects of sin in the world will one day be over. God's going to win this thing. And these chapters tell us that God's in control. He's working towards that conclusion. Doesn't that give you hope? to know that the deep divisions in our community won't always be there. The corruption and abuse of power will one day be made right. Those moments hearing the news of the problems affecting our city, the homelessness, the drug, and child trafficking, Lord, help us. Don't those moments make you resonate with God's weariness to the sin around us? When you read that stuff, you hear that stuff, you go, oh, it's so bad. The fight against the effects of sin in our city will be over one day. And I would add that this is why we're here, church. To live radically against these powers working in the world around us. To be a light in this darkness. To be a tangible presence of Jesus to the brokenness around us. Because greater is he that's in us, right, than he that's in the world. Remembering that there's hope helps us be serious about these things. To continue our fight against apathy. The apathy that Israel felt. To not let it sneak in. To fight a little longer. A hope rooted in God and who God is, what he's promised, and who we are. Here's some fantastic news to end with. You ready? 59 
59. That's the number of times in these two chapters the Lord is the one acting. He's the one doing the work. 59 times. In two chapters. 59 times. Things like, I am doing this thing. I have done this thing. I will do this thing. I chose you. I'm directing. I'm going to save. So be assured that God is the one saving, working, restoring. And we get invited into that work. But eight times in these two chapters, there are things like, you will. Things that we ought to do eight times. Direct action on our part. Some of it's repeated a few times. Half of them are, do not be afraid. Here's a thing you need to do. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Also four times, we are called to remember. That's the other four. We're called to remember. First, remember who God is, what he's done. We didn't even get to any of this in this passage, but there's an amazing um, narrative against idolatry. You should read it. It's amazing. But that's another one of the remembers, is remember how foolish idolatry of any kind is. Remember that you are God's people. And then the last remember gives us a really great word to end with. It's Isaiah 44, 21 through 22. Here's what it says. God to his people. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. For you are my servant. I formed you. Remember that. You are my servant. Remember that. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Remember that. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Remember that and return to me. For I have redeemed you. Remember that. Remember, church, that you belong to God. You were formed by God. You are God's servants, his worshipers. God's not going to forget you. Remember, church, that your sins are washed away. So return to him. And we respond in this way by returning back to God every week when we take communion. In communion as part of our response time, when we respond to the word of God that's communicated to us, we respond by remembering who we are. We remember that Jesus is the kind of God who gave everything for us, who bled and died for us. We remember that when we take communion. We also remember that we, in light of God's goodness, are sinners in need of God's grace. So we remember that every week. We come together, remember his blood that was shed, and we repent, we turn from that which is going to lead us towards death and destruction, and we turn back towards the giver of life, the path of life. During our response time, we also sing because of who God's revealed himself to be. Remember that list towards the beginning. God is incredible. So we sing and pray because he's mind-blowing. 59 times he's the one doing the work for you. That's amazing. We also give during this time. You can do that online. They're giving boxes in the back. And we also pray during this time. There's people up at the wings who would love to pray for you, uh, pray with you. Uh, anything you're facing this week, anything that God's doing in you, we'd love to pray with you as a brother or sister in Christ. So let me pray and then we'll respond in that way. And God, I'm just reminded and struck by your beauty and your goodness. The God of our dreams, we are so thankful. And so, God, for those that need this spark of hope, we pray that your spirit would bring that spark of hope right now into a situation that seems hopeless. And if we're in this room and we're apathetic towards your goodness, then, God, make us hungry. Hungry, Lord. More hungry for you than the things of this world to chase after you with our whole heart. And every time that we taste and see that you're good, man, it leaves us wanting more of you. You are truly the only thing that could ever really satisfy. Everything else is good for a moment and it falls short.
you don't fall short. So we thank you, God. Continue to work in us, Holy Spirit, as we respond to your goodness now. In Jesus' name, amen.
Church, Romans 8 reminds us of this wonderful truth. If God is for you, who can stand against you? Church, can anything separate you from the love of God? No. Can death or life? No. Can rulers or powers? No. Can anything happening now or in the future separate you from the love of your God? No. Can height or depth? No. Can anything at all? No. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So church, remember that truth. Go out in that peace. Go out in that victory. And go live all of life all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.